Hi, Mary. Hello, Karen. I'm really excited about this conversation we're going to have today for three reasons. First, I'm hoping that we can follow up on the conversation that Paul Vanderclay just had with John Verbeke regarding personhood as an argument for the existence of God. And um, I also want to follow up on some comments that you made on one of Paul's videos earlier about how our food source, um, it, it, how our food communicates with the earth that it is grown in to let it know what it needs. I thought that was an amazing concept and I want to learn more about that. Okay. And then finally, I just want to get to know you because next week we're going to have this four-way conversation with Esther and Sherry and you, Mary, and myself. And uh, it, it's, it'll just be good to know everybody a little bit before we get started. So. Oh, I think that's perfect. <laughs> okay. So where would you like to start? Well, I think since it's fresh in my mind, let's start with this Paul Vanderclay, John Verveke video, because I noticed in the comments that you said there was something you wanted to talk about. So I thought I'd put the ball in your court here. <clears throat> okay. Oh, this is so complicated. I know. Uh, this is complex, <laughs> not complicated. I don't remember. It's complex. I don't know if you saw Carl Gruner in the comments. I, I saw there all about 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 by Carl, the yes. between complex and complicated. Yeah. You know, okay, I have to, I'm going to try to use those words correctly from now on. This is so complex. Um, all right. So, first of all, I guess what I'd like to bounce off of you is there were three, or maybe about three, like, points in the video that just captured my attention not necessarily from content wise but more in the like the communication between the two of them uh -huh. yeah. and I'd, I wonder what you if it, there were any like highlights of that for you so one was when um when Paul Vanderclay put up one of his slides towards the end he said this is like this is my weirdest slide yet or something like that and John Rubecki goes, this is the funnest. <laughs> do you remember her saying that? Yes, I do. And I, that just cracked me up because I loved that, um, like that spirit of play uh -huh. that John Rubecki shows with the, with the material. I thought both of them showed that. But when he said, when he made that statement and said, um, um, it's the funnest, that, that really showed that. And then. Another one was where John Verveke said when he was started, when, when Paul mentioned Jordan Peterson, John Verveke had a reaction. And then he said, well, if you see this in my face, here's why I'm having this reaction. He kind of explained it's not a, about you, you mm -hmm. know, and that harkened me back to the conversation that John Verveke had with Jordan Hall, where they were doing this thing of paying a lot of attention. I don't know if you saw that one. They were paying attention to what was going on in their own bodies as their responses. And I think that's interesting because I think sometimes our bodies know what our emotional response to something is even before we processed it hmm. mentally. And hmm. so the idea of bringing that aware, bodily awareness into a conversation, oh boy, that's, that's a very um interesting and difficult 
thing. And I, I like that, that John is so, has that um, awareness of himself to kind of catch himself. He caught his face changing and then wanted to explain it. And so those were, those were a couple of the, of the points that just kind of sparked me when I, when I saw them. Was it, did anything catch your attention in particular? Well, when he's, when he said that about Jordan Peterson, it caught my attention for a different reason, but I do appreciate how authentic he was to, um, to describe what was happening in his thought process rather than just, you know, just throw off something and then move on. Um, he was willing to be honest about what he was thinking, which I thought was great. Yeah. And then, um, I liked the whole, I liked the whole interaction that they had and the way that they were both accepting of each other and challenging of one another's ideas. I, I appreciated this conversation greatly and I listened to it twice. Okay. And I hardly ever listen to anything twice. <laughs> so that was, it would take me at least twice to be able, when I listen to it, I sort of let it wash over me because in a lot of the, I haven't listened to all of Verveke's videos. So a lot of what they're talking about, I, I don't have any background in at all. And I just sort of let it wash over. And then when, when something is salient, <laughs> I stop and I, and I listen to that, you know, and I, I, uh, I try to interact with it in my mind, but a lot of what they were talking about just washed right over me. So I would have to go back and listen to it two or three times to really get the full intent of their, their discussion. But certain things did stick out to me. The whole emanation and emergence issue stood out to me. And, um, and of course, Paul's whole, argument from personhood I thought was very interesting. Right. And I, I thought it was interesting that John Verveke said that there were other thinkers and philosophers that were coming in with this approach also, mm -hmm. because I think that's more of a recent kind of thing in the philosophical world. Of course, in theology, that's been done, you know, for ages. But I think, you know, seeing that philosophers are looking at it is just great. Okay, so here's the thing that I have been thinking about for a very long time that really touches on this, and maybe you can help me think about it. Because okay. <laughs> I don't think we could think about any of this stuff by ourselves. But I, you know, it's the sort of thing I think about. Like I wake up in the middle of the night and think about it. But how, okay, so I'm accepting, I'm fully accepting of the, classical Christian um, um, identity of God and with the omnis, you know, omnipresent, omnipotent, uh, omniscient, all of that, and eternal, and the eternal trinity, all of that. Mm -hmm. One of the questions that I've had, and I know it's not a new question that has been approached by thinkers before, is in that, in that God, where is there room for everything else that's not God? Um, we're not in that God, but how how does that God make room? Or <laughs> if I'm making sense, the words are just the words just fail, right? 
how does that God make, I, I almost want to say space, but he's not in space. So I almost want to say t time, but he's not in time. How does he make provision for there to be, oh, that might be the best word, provision for there to be other things, or not, I shouldn't say other things, right? Because he is not a thing. How does he make provision? I'll figure it out sooner or later. How does he make provision for there to be other beings that are not him with all that he is? Because one of the things that Bishop Barron does make it a point to say is that God is not in competition with us and he's not a thing in the universe, right? It's not mm -hmm. like an object in the universe. And so I would ponder this question. And when Jordan Peterson started talking about chaos being the unknown and being the source of what is new, I started thinking about that. And I thought, well, if let me, let me just play with the idea that that's true, that chaos is the unknown and is the source of what is new. Now, I know some Christians... The source of all information. Source okay. of all, right, yeah. source of information, right? Really deep um, idea. Yeah. And yes, because what is already mapped territory mm -hmm. is not, a, well, we'll say, is not a source of new information, right? What's right. new? And this is something they talked about. So my, my question was, how does this, if, we, if God already knows all things, where's this unknown? that is the source of or the chaos where's the chaos because christians have you know i think christians have all asserted that there is not chaos in god right so where is this unknown that um that brings forth something new okay where is it okay so does that make sense what i'm saying oh, yes yes it totally makes sense Yes, and, and I want to explore this with you because I've been thinking about this too and haven't been able to nail it down at all. So I'm, I'm talking here at the very periphery of my understanding. So I'm also going to be searching for words, okay? Okay. So in quantum mechanics, they talk about everything in the universe being waves, and at the same time that it is a wave, it is a particle. So you and I are composed of, of quanta mm -hmm. that make up the atoms, that make up the molecules, that make up the systems, that make up our bodies. You know, all, so it goes all the way down to these little quanta that are tiny, 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 tiny things that are waves and at the same time they are particles. And it is a wave until it is a particle. And it becomes a particle right. when you observe it. Right. Okay. So let's let's imagine that this and I and I'm I'm not trying to steal anything from the transcendence of God or anything like that. I'm just trying to explore an idea here. Right. If the universe is, as they say in quantum mechanics, composed of just waves, everything is just waves. So there's really no material reality except what we experience you know my hand is composed of of all these waves and 
And if my other hand could some way push aside those waves, it could go right through, right? I mean, right. It, it's only that things are randomly hitting each other in such a way that they become solid. So, so the whole universe is made like this. And um, this ties in with a lot of things that Jordan Peterson is talking about. So Jordan Peterson talks about this little thing that glimmers out in front of us, this little interest thing right. that he says is our future calling us forward. So when we follow that trail, when we, when we look above the horizon to the highest possible good, and we begin following that trail, then things come into our field of observation that are pertinent to our ability to follow that trail. And they wouldn't come into our field of vision if we weren't following the trail. So this little interest thing that's out in front of us is a very, very important thing. And I noticed the other day in, a, in one of the videos that Sevilla made, or maybe it was Paul looking at a video that Sevilla did with Jonathan Peugeot. She was talking about Persig's um, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Right. Right. And, and so in that book, apparently, he talks about quality being the thing that leads us forward. And of course, all of these things are just, you know, synonyms for God. Right? <laughs> right? So, so God is leading us forward. God is showing us the way in some manner. And when, when, when these things come into our field of vision, then they concretize. They become real. Now, I know this, sound, this sounds very much like when Elon Musk says, we're living in a simulation. You know, the kids joke about this now because they say, oh, we're living in a simulation. And, and when we, if we wake up too early in the morning, they won't have the sunrise ready yet. Because <laughs> they're only getting the simulation ready as we need it, right? So sometimes it's not quite ready. And, and that's this whole idea of as we're moving forward and things come into our field of vision, they become real for us and they become a part of our experience. Now, I'm not saying whether that's right or wrong. I'm just saying it's a picture that we can use. Okay, so, so this is a picture that I'm using to think about this. And so then when I think about it that way, I have to go back to what Jordan Peterson talks about when he talks about anomaly. Now, did, did you read Maps of Meaning? I've read part of it, and I the anomaly, that's the... That's like the thing that alerts you to the error, right? Well, anomaly is anomaly is like hundred pages of the book. So okay, I haven't read that part. I think yet. it's chapter four. Okay, and, I have not gotten to chapter four. So it's it's really kind of like the thing I really enjoy about that book, and I've read it twice all the way through, and I've read anomaly three times. But the thing that's beautiful about the book is that. You read the whole book and he's laying out this very extensive argument with a lot of depth underneath it, very complicated. And as he gets to the end of the book, he begins to collapse the whole argument until the very last page 
when you read the last page, it's the entire argument of the book in one page. But if you've read the book carefully, when you read each sentence on that page, it opens up in your mind, just like a hyperlink on the internet. Right. It, it opens up all this stuff that you already understand. So then when you listen to Jordan Peterson talk and he uses some of those sentences, you have this big picture of what's underneath what he's saying. This is why I think so often he's misunderstood because people listen to some simple sentence and they think that's all he means. But what he really means is this 150 pages of argument that went with that sentence, right? Right. So anomaly is this kind of big thing that could encompass many aspects of the universe. But let me use one example. Let's say suffering. Suffering is an anomaly. Suffering comes into our lives and it, it forces change. We, okay. we have to accommodate to it. It forces us to see reality. Reality becomes painfully real at that moment of suffering, right? Right. So, <clears throat> so the anomaly... forces us to observe reality, <laughs> I guess is the way I'd have to say it. So <clears throat> the picture that I have, and uh, this is so hard to tie, but I want to tie it back into this whole thing about quantum mechanics, that um, as that somehow God has created a universe in which all things are possible. Yes, I thought that too. Yes, so but it's formed in so that all things don't happen. Right. All things don't happen though. There, the the possibilities are all possible. <laughs> and and so it um and this is another this is a very bad picture, but it's a picture that has been helpful to me to try to corral this. My daughter plays this game called Mario Kart mm -hmm. and it's a video game <clears throat> and it's a bunch of people that get in this little cart and they're tooling through this little world and they do things in the world and even though it's a fairly, I mean it's a it's a fairly simple animation but it's quite a sophisticated game in that wherever this you get to choose where the car goes but wherever it goes there's a world that opens up in front of it right and you get to choose what elements that you pick up in the world and then they become tools that you can use in that world and you can do almost anything with them and <clears throat> the world will accommodate to you as you do that. So <clears throat> we're living in something way bigger than Mario Kart, but it's as though whatever choice I make, something is going to become real in front of me. And God has given me agency to make choices that are choices that will create a better world and a beautiful world. But I also have that same agency that I could make choices that create a bad world. And we see that around us all the time. And one of the ways that I think that keeps us from because then you would ask, well, why is it that anything good ever happens? Because it's always easier to take the bad road. It's always easier. But anomaly gets in there, and suffering changes people. 
So sometimes a person might be headed down a wrong road, but something will come in and stumble them in their path and they wake up to reality and they say, wait a minute, I'm headed down a wrong path. And so they'll make a course correction. So in my mind, somehow God is using anomaly and suffering as a way of helping us to grow and mature and develop into, into people who will use our agency for the good instead of for the bad. Okay. I, a, I mean, that's, that's great. That's great. Now, <laughs> I have some stuff that in my head that I think will connect with that. Okay. Oh, and this also connects with the quality thing. All right. So you talked about the, the focus, the goal, and how things come into into view that will help you toward the goal and you and you know we don't see all the peripheral stuff when we're focused on the goal and the more focused we are the less of the and, and jordan peterson makes the point that we want as many things as possible to not matter because we're so limited on our mental bandwidth that the more things that we can make not matter the easier it is the better the better off we are when a whole lot of things matter we're in we're in trouble you yeah. know I like, you know, if your house burns down and you have to replace everything, all of a sudden everything, it's not the same thing as looking at your house now and going, hmm, maybe I need to just replace this chair. But then everything's got, got to be replaced. Yeah, and it's, I've, I've been through that. so I, I know. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. So that's awful. I'm so sorry you had to go through that. <laughs> um, it was a huge anomaly and a terrific learning experience, I'll tell you. Yeah. 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 Okay. So... So I'm thinking about this fact of the focus, but the focus is also based on a value. Right. Because what you focus on what you, is the thing that you're valuing. So really, when you focus, you're saying, um, this is the most important thing. This is the, high, the most important thing for me right, for me right now. Mm -hmm. you know? um, you're making a value judgment. This is, you're always making a value judgment. Or right. Whether you know it or not. Quality. Yeah. What's that? Whether you know it or not. Whether you know it or not. You're right. always making a value. You're always valuing. Because otherwise, if you valued everything equally, you wouldn't focus on anything. And, in particular. Exactly. and you wouldn't see. You would not see anything. That's right. And you wouldn't be able to move forward. If there's, right. no, if there's no value differentiation, there's no movement. Okay, so this relates to what John Verveghi was saying about possibility and constraints. So you said everything, the, everything is possible in the universe, and, and I think we kind of all can sense that anything is possible, but we know that, as John Verveghi put it, the things that become actual have I, are things that possess idos, meaning intelligibility. All of the new things that come into being possess intelligibility. They're not unintelligible things. Um, so can you give me a little bit more? I, I didn't hear him talking about that. So can you describe that a little bit more? Okay. So let me try and think of how he was putting it. He was talking about uh, another author who had, was, was, this other author was discussing the question of possibility versus actuality. 
or I think in I think in the older tradition, um, classical um, philo philosophical tradition, you would talk about potential versus actuality. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that is said about God in the, you know, classically in Christian theology is that God is, that there's no potential in God. That God is complete actuality. Mm -hmm. And which is why I was started off with my initial question. If there's no potential in God, where, where is potential coming? And how is potential coming in? But anyway, oh, oh, oh. I, I have something to say to that. Okay. I just thought of something. And it's a very poor example, but I just thought of something. So, so God is complete, but he is capable of producing, he is capable of creating an environment in which potential exists. Okay. Well, now, okay. So now, I, I agree. Let me let me let me let me give okay. you an example. So this is a dumb example, but but I'm a painter. I paint pictures, and when I create a painting, I am outside the painting. I am different than the painting. You know, it, the it, the Bible says that we're created in God's image, which I take to mean that He is a creator God. He has also given us creative capability whether that creation is planting a garden or painting a picture or whatever it might be, we're using that creative capacity in a variety of ways. So, so when I paint a picture, I've created something and it's other than me. It is um, composed of substance in that it, it is paint on canvas and in some sense, it's finished. It is static, okay? But in another sense, it is not finished until it is viewed by the viewer. Because there is meaning in that painting that I didn't put into it, that a viewer can get from it when they interact with the painting. That's good. That's so okay. even though the painting is is complete, it's finished, it's you know, it's it's there. Mm -hmm. There is potential there as well. Okay. I think I, I like what you said, but I'm trying to go back in a way this is where language breaks down entirely in a way prior because you're kind of talking about once the creation is once the created order is created that it has the potential now i'm trying to get back behind that you mean before I'm, the big bang sure before the big bang before okay so my be, uh, what I'm trying to do is say, so let me, let me come at it this way. Some Christians have criticized Jordan Peterson talking about chaos and order because he talks about chaos and order as, as um, the part of the ground of being. And if, and you know, the ground of being is one of the 
kind of like a thing that people have used to define God. What is God? The ground of being, right? Have you heard that expression? Are you familiar with that? Well, okay, full confession. I have not read a lot of theologians or a lot of okay. philosophers or or any of that stuff. I have I've watched a fair bit of um apologists like John Lennox, but I avoid some of the other apologists because they package everything up in such a neat little bow that it doesn't really work for me. Okay. But I can kind of imagine what they mean by the ground of being. Okay. Well, it would relate to a painting in a way. So let's say, you know, you have one of these paintings like Monet, and he's got the people in the park with the, with the lilies or something, you know, people in the park with all the, the water and, you know, what kind of painting I'm talking about. Well, imagine those, imagine those people could talk, right? And one of them said, uh, started talking about the canvas. And one of them said, there is no canvas. What are you talking about? Right. Mm -hmm. um, so that would be the ground. Like the, the, it's the thing that everything is. It's the thing that has to exist in order for those things to be there, to exist. It's the ground on which they exist. Or we could say in which they exist. It's the ground of being. It is existence, pure existence itself. Okay. That's well, what okay okay but uh, that picture doesn't work for me because the canvas is meaningless without the artist. Right? Mm -hmm. So so right. the artist is separate from the ground of being. Right. But if the canvas could paint itself yes, but they can't. <laughs> <laughs> it can't. It can't. And, but this is an illustration, and all illustrations break down. But I'm trying to get the concept of the ground of being, you know, that... I'm just wondering, is there... I'm just trying to clarify this, because you're trying to get at something about what philosophers have said, where... And theologians. And theologians have talked about where the idea of order and chaos cannot exist in in that framework because of the ground of being but what if there are two things what if there is the ground of being and then there is being itself well there, okay and then what, what i'm calling the ground of being is being itself the reason they use the word <clears throat> the expression ground of being is as an explanation for there being other beings besides god so um, what I, that's what I'm trying to get at is that in Christian theology, mm -hmm. God is being, not a being, mm -hmm. but, yeah. the, but being itself and the ground of being, mm -hmm. that which is able to communicate being, the uncontingent and in un and, and non-begin, not having a beginning, eternal, which, who, I'll say who, communicates existence to contingent beings, beings that are dependent. Right. Okay. And so I'm using the illustration of the painting, mm -hmm. the painting being on the canvas, but not being part of the 
but the paint the canvas is not part of the painting right okay so that's what i'm trying to get at to call god the ground of being but also being is also being okay mm. all right so let me see if i can gather this together um <clears throat> as well as you gathered your piece together <laughs> and do it some justice so my my question i want to go back to the order and chaos thing mm. because this is a criticism that's been made of jordan peterson because from the classical christian conception if you're going to say that chaos and order are fundamental constituents of a being then the question is well, where does the chaos come in if god is what christians have classically said he is and i'm i'm thinking of like you know when i say classically said i'm thinking you know like thomas aquinas okay um and i when i was thinking about this because some people have said well jordan peterson is wrong about this because there's nothing unknown in god so i was thinking about whether it's there's any unknown whether god is associated with an unknown in scripture and i think you're gonna like this one <laughs> okay so the thought struck me that there's a place where jesus says that he doesn't know something and what he doesn't remember do you recall from scripture what he says he doesn't know the disciples ask him when is the end of the world or when is the end of time when is the end of the sage well that's what he says no one knows the date or time <clears throat> right no one knows not the son but only the father mm -hmm. and i thought there's a there's a not knowing in other words in the trinity there was this unknown which the son said that he did not know it now the son knows it only the father knows it and all it takes is that little tiny a little tiny space of something unknown to open up everything and i thought it was very interesting that the very thing that he said was the unknown i mean there's been christians have christians have gone nuts over this passage forever because the explanation is there's all, all kinds of explanations that are that that basically try to say it can't be possible that he didn't know maybe he didn't know because he was operating in his human nature at that moment when he said that but you know he he specifically says he refers to the son not the the son doesn't know the father knows you know which makes it sound like he's really talking about all this relationship that he had in heaven with the father before he came to earth he's not you know it's um he doesn't say the son of man doesn't know this is the son right and so i thought it was interesting that this has to do with the end it has to do with the telos it has to do with the very end that when it's a question of time mm -hmm. something is going to end it's not known the reason why it's so interesting that it's the end is because when we think about creation a lot of times we think of creation as a thing that happened that's how god started everything 
all right um but that's not really the the way that theologians have actually talked about creation so creation is god is is not just god like giving a push from behind everything but god and this ties in with what you said god drawing everything towards a conclusion mm -hmm. so if there's this and like I said, all it takes is this one thing, tiny thing that's unknown. And in that unknown, now there's time because it's unknown. Now it can expand out. It's the expansion of time. I'm thinking of this in terms of, you know, what, what classically we say about the order of creation. But the first thing that gets created, the are the angels who exist in time but not in space once the angels exist there's a they and then there's an unknown for them it's very interesting because the bible actually says that the whole state of human history up to the incarnation and how the son of god was going to be manifested in the flesh was something that the angels were pondering and wondering about, desiring to peer into, I think it's the wording it uses. So the angels have an unknown, and their unknown has to do with space. Now you've got their the space. unknown also has to do with suffering. It has to do with suffering, right? Yeah. It had but what I'm thinking about is the way the way we get the the her, I don't want to use the word space. The way we get the possibility, the possibilities open up in time and then in space for the universe to exist, a universe that is in time and space. Mm -hmm. But that first unknown is that, so, so I'm going out on a theological limb here real big. <laughs> and and I'm, just, I'm just pondering it, okay? I'm just pondering that there was that there was within the Godhead, within the Holy Trinity, this little tiny unknown thing that the Father kept to himself from the Son, which opened up that which opened up the possibility for create creating a universe in time and space. So what do you think about that? <laughs> Well, I really, really liked what you said when you said that what God is doing is always drawing things to a conclusion. Right. Right? And, and his conclusion is good. Yes. Right? So... Even before the universe came into being, he could foresee everything that would happen in the garden. And he could foresee his need to sacrifice himself on the cross on our behalf in order to bring us back into fellowship with him. And he could foresee the, the conclusion of all things. And it's always drawing us forward. 
I really like that when you said that because that fits in so perfectly with this picture of of how the it's this this little thread, this little thing out in front of us that draws us forward, this little the things that catch our eye, the things that interest us. I mean, I've noticed that in myself since I got onto this thing I'm working on, trying to understand quantum mechanics and mathematics and, and geology and how all these things fit together with, with God's word and all of that. And on any given day, just by accident, I'll be watching a video or listening to a video while I'm walking, and by accident, I'll tap the screen unknowingly and some other thing will pop up and it happens to be exactly the thing that leads me onto another path that I need to know in order to finish the first thing I was thinking about and it, <laughs> right so all these little things are always leading me forward and it's such a picture of God's goodness that he um he provides those opportunities for us these little god sightings if if our eyes and ears are open he always makes himself known to us in this way. And so, so for me, when I, you know, when I was listening to um, John Verveke and, and Paul Vanderclay talk, I, I just listened to that video yesterday. And I'm listening to them talk. And there was actually one time in which um, Dr. Verveke was trying to say something about the possible existence of God. And he got so caught up in being unable to even express what he was thinking about that he lost all words for well <laughs> over a minute you remember that yes he, he couldn't put it into words at all yeah and, and i thought that was quite telling because yes. he wants so much he fervently and authentically wants to help people find meaning and yet he is unwilling to find that meaning in the metaphysical universe or the supernatural universe and that got me to thinking why is it that we put such emphasis on this idea of supernatural or metaphysical um well that stuff may be collapsing if it, it's possible that quantum mechanics is going to make all of that stuff kind of collapse at some point um in that okay so i want to get back to what you said about what was it um when you were saying that um, um that which draws uh, us forward yes draw draw oh i know what i was thinking when you were talking about the possibility and how God uses suffering to constrain. That's what I want. I want to get into that word constrain because okay. that word constrain, John Bervegi has pointed out that nothing exists without constraints. All right. That the boundaries, constraints are, boundaries are essential. Right. Yeah. Right. But that there's, that you can't, say what something in a sense it's almost like that aristotelian um that first uh, you know law of logic that you can't say what something is without saying what it is not also and um and one of our problems one of the things that's odd is that when it comes to language about god 
and this is something pointed out by many theologians and, and mystics, that all we have is constraints on what we say. That's all we have. Because we, we can say what God is not. I think they call this apophatic um, dis, discourse, right? We can say what God is not, but to say what he is is beyond our ability. So there's a certain darkness, there's a certain hidden hiddenness, but we have that we we have a constraint on our speech to say what God is not. But when it comes to when it comes to objects in the material world that we deal with, we can easily say this is you know I'll do a Paul Vanderclay. This is a water bottle. <laughs> it's not an emu, <laughs> and it's not. I could list an infinite number of things. It's not. Right. So, um, okay. So possibility and constraints. Um, okay. So when you were talking about the possibility and the constraints and the suffering, I was thinking about the way the scriptures use the image of God or the a metaphor illustration. I don't always recall of God as a potter with clay. Yes. Uh-huh. Constraining. So there's a one, and I don't know if you've ever worked on a potter's wheel. I, I used to. There's um you're certainly not controlling every molecule or particle of the clay as you shape it. You know, you you know, part of the shaping is just very can be really it can be hard, but it can also be very gentle, kind of because of as the as the wheel turns, you're there are forces that you're dealing with in the clay. I mean, the centrifugal force is always pushing it out. You're pressing it Sometimes in. The clay has but a mind of its own, too. It, pardon? Sometimes the clay has a mind of its own, too. <laughs> yes, it does. That is, not, that is not what we want it to do. <laughs> but but <laughs> that can end up being a surprise and a delight to the father also. But, there, but if you're making a, a vessel that's going to be hollow, I mean, there comes that moment when you're a, when you go in and you start pushing, making that hole in the center, you know, and there's sometimes, depending on the size of the pot, quite a lot of force that has to be used. And that's a dicey moment because you can lose the, lose the shape and get it wobbling out of control at that, at that moment. So yeah. there's, you know, it's, it's a lot of care because then I think about it's a constraint. You're putting a constraint on it, but, it's you're const, you're not constraining every bit of it there's a lot of it that's moving into place in reaction to your constraint but moving not you're not your will is not being exerted on every single molecule of that clay mm -hmm. so i was thinking about that in harmony in line with the suffering that God has a certain end toward which he's drawing all things. But as he does that, maybe the suffering is like that constraint. It's like that hand of that potter. But within that shaping, there's a lot of room for individual bits to move around, to respond to the natural forces, which, of course, the potter has put into place by putting it on the 
on the wheel and making it spin, right? But still, there are those natural forces that are being worked with and that's responding to that. And there's a constraint to get to a vision that, he, that the potter has at the end for what the potter wants to produce. Does that make? Oh, yeah. And I, I, I love that image because I, I've thought about that a lot in the past, too, and how I because I tried doing pottery for a while and mm -hmm. <laughs> the, the, the clay can have a mind of its own. And I, I didn't work at it long enough to learn well. So I would often have one just fling apart on me when I'd get to the place of putting that pressure in to hollow it out. And, and then, of course, when that happens, you have to pound it all down and start <laughs> over again, right? right. Yeah. And, and so what you said about not having control over every particle of the clay, it's very much like that in our lives. Even when we go through suffering, we have quite a bit of choice or agency in how much we suffer in the midst of that suffering. I mean, there's suffering that I bring on myself. There's suffering that comes upon me through no fault of my own. And in that suffering, when it's through no fault of my own, if I fight against it, I can make it a whole lot worse. If I get all tangled up in, in trying to rule the thing myself, I can make it a whole lot worse. But if in some ways, if I accommodate to the suffering or if I if I agree to learn what I can in the midst of it the suffering is mitigated to some extent and I can move through it with some peace and even some joy right um, so so there is that sense in which the the whole potter's wheel I think is such a beautiful picture but how do you think that would apply as I'm thinking of it in terms of like the entire structure of the universe and with beings in it who have their own agency well i mean that the the example is given to us in scripture that we are the pot <laughs> you know we are the clay he is right. the water, and he is making something of us and and sometimes what he's making of us ends up being a broken pot but you know, like they like they say, the broken pots have cracks, and the light shows through the cracks better than than in a pot that's not broken. So there are many ways in which that picture is real. But I especially liked you using it in the sense of discussing constraint, because I've been thinking a lot about this whole idea of boundaries and how because okay, so in art, one of the things that that I learned in art through this class that I've taken over and over and over again to try to really internalize it is that there are these elements and principles that kind of are like the elements and principles that govern the universe. They're, they're rules in a sense that they've been observed over the millennia as those aspects which make a painting interesting pleasing or make a piece of music interesting or pleasing to people or complex and fascinating so these elements and principles are observed rules but but they do govern to a certain extent 
how you put a piece of art together, if you think about it, they're very helpful. And <clears throat> there's seven elements and eight principles, and I'm not going to go into all of that. But right. the big idea, if you boil it down, the big idea is what you're going for is unity with variety. Okay, so to me, that's one and the many. <laughs> one and the many. So, so out of that, you get calculus, you get physics, you get all these things, right? I mean, the pictures are very, very analogous. And one of the um, one of the element, well, uh, the elements are line, size, shape, direction, color, value, and texture. Those are right. just things that the painting is made of. The things you can see. But then the principles are ideas, like boundaries, um, rhythm, repetition, gradation. They're concepts that right. kind of govern how you use those elements. And dominance is one of the important principles. Without dominance, the painting loses its structure. No focus. Yes, because the dominance provides the ground, and then the small thing provides the focus. So in some sense, you have this large ground. Let's say it's mostly blue with a little bit of orange. And let's say it's mostly a big shape with a small shape. Your eye is going to go where the thing is different, where the variety occurs. So, so you have this dominance. But none of it works without boundaries there has to be a boundary there has to be a place where the painting ends there's an outside there's a there's a rectangle there right right so one of the things that they found in history and this goes way back to the pre-renaissance people is that the most pleasing rectangle is based on the golden ratio right right so i don't know if you've done any study about the golden ratio yeah. So, and the most. And it's a Fibonacci. Yes, the Fibonacci sequence breaks down into the golden ratio. Right. But the golden ratio was discovered long before Fibonacci discovered the Fibonacci sequence. Right. Which is also interesting. And then when you, when you look at how the, the rectangle is constructed using the Fibonacci sequence, if you start with you know, one, one, two, three, five, you start with a little square that's one on a side and then another square of one and then a square of two next to that and then a square of three. You build all these little uh, squares based on the Fibonacci sequence and eventually end up with the rectangle built out of those squares. If you, if you bisect all those little squares, what you end up with is a perfect spiral that right. is spiral that comes from the um, chambered nautilus well the chambered nautilus ferns ferns as they yeah. unfold all, yeah. there's there's all kinds of things. that's right so yeah. okay so you get this perfect spiral but um so i find that whole idea of a boundary i know that it has i know that these elements and principles of art have something to do fundamentally with the construction of the universe and i've been thinking about these things for a long time and so constraint and boundary and you go back to the whole idea of limitation that jordan peterson talks about when he says 
the, the rabbis used to talk about when you have a being who is omnipotent and omnipresent and um, omniscient, what does he lack? The only thing he lacks is limitation. So he creates a world in which there is limitation. That's what he says the rabbis said. Right. Okay. Now, that's an idea to play with. I don't know what the theologian right. would say about that, but I think it's an interesting concept because we do live with limitation. It is limitation right. that... On the one hand, limitation is what produces safety for us, like the walled garden. But on the other hand, it's limitation that produces suffering because yes. it's what we can't accomplish. But it reminds me of a little child when they're right at the point of being able to crawl. They can see what they could get at if they could just get there. And then later when they're almost ready to walk, they know very well that they could get to the other side of the room much faster if they could walk instead of crawl. Or when they're just getting ready to learn to talk, they're not quite there. At right. all those points, they become extremely frustrated and agitated, and they're real hard to deal with right then. Right. That's the way we are with our limitations, because we get agitated. We, we see what's possible, but we can't get there because of limitation. Okay, let me say something. Let me come in this way to say what what Jordan Peterson said, the rabbis said, I believe the rabbis said, but I want to give a Christian response to that. Mm -hmm. So what the Christian would say in response is that God had a limitation, not limited in his being itself, but limited in the sense that the Son is not the Father, and the Son and the Father are not the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. So that within God, there is a difference. There is both a unity. There is the one and the many right within God. So then, there, so the limitation part is internal. And let me explain why I think that's so important. Um, the reason I think that's important is because if we say that there's something that God lacked, then we have a God who is dependent for having something on his creation. And that's one of the, um, like that's one of the criticisms of Unitarianism is that, um, so God is love, for example. And we have to say, well, in within God, there has to be love. So there would have to be someone to love. Not that God had to make someone before he would have someone to love. Right. That right. makes sense. So I, when, I, when I think or talk about, about God, and of course, this doesn't apply to Jordan Peterson, because I don't think Jordan Peterson knows very much about Christian theology at all, really. <laughs> Sometimes when he talks about the Bible, it's almost like, if you're a Christian and you're familiar with the Bible, you just think, oh, oh, Jordan, you just, you, you're just so kind of clueless in a way. You know, you're fumbling around. Like, for example, when he, he will quote the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Matthew, and you get the sense that he doesn't even realize that the Gospel of Thomas is not really part of the Bible. It's like, it, like he thinks they're, you know, 
like maybe he thinks if he opened up the Bible, he'd find the Gospel of Thomas in it, you know, or something like that. He doesn't seem very familiar. Now, he's gotten real familiar with Genesis and all that uh, by reading through it to do his lectures. But I think that in a lot of ways, he's really very uh, almost like naive, but not in a, I, and I don't say this in a bad sense, because I just, I don't think there's anything uh, bad about that. And I think what he's done with the Bible is wonderful, but sometimes I kind of chuckle a little bit when I hear him say something because it's like most people who've been through, you know, any kind of Sunday school would already know that that's not quite the case. But um, is the Gospel of Thomas in the Catholic Bible? No. Okay. No, the Catholic it's Bible. In the apocryphal Bible, then. No, no, no. Um, usually, when people talk about the apocrypha. When Protestants talk about the Apocrypha, what they are talking about is seven books of the Old Testament, which are in the Catholic Bible and not in Protestant and not in all Protestant Bibles, though they were in the 1611 King James Bible. The, um, that's what um, Protestants are referring to when they say the Apocrypha. The okay. Gospel of Thomas is one of the Gnostic Gospels from oh, a different from from a, um, a contemporaneous but different community from the um, what we would call the orthodox part of, of Christianity. Okay. So, so that's how uh, you know. But you get the sense that he really doesn't even realize that it's not that they're not you know of equal kind of like of equal authority in a way. So, um, so why was I saying this about Jordan Peterson and the Bible? Now I can't remember because I. I lost my train of thought on that. Well, we were talking about lack, and you were saying that the reason it's so important that the lack is internal to the Godhead. Or the limit, a limitation. limitation is internal to the, to the Godhead. Right, right. So that God is not dependent upon his creation mm -hmm. for, for anything. So in, you know, in the classical Christian understanding of God, God does not create out of any necessity to himself. Okay. Um, he creates out of what we might call a kind of an overflow of love, a, a generous, a, a generous desire to share the goodness of existence, which he has as an uncontingent un being with beings who would be contingent and contingency just means that you're dependent on something to continue to exist mm -hmm. all right and so that that is that that's why he created and that any doctrine of god that makes him create out of a necessity is not a christian doctrine of god because in the christian doctrine of god god is god is love mm -hmm. and is not does not create us for, I'm going to say for use. That makes sense? Does not create his creation for his use, but out of generous sharing of the goodness of existence with others, with real others, with real others. And so, so that, that's why there's, we believe, Christians believe that there's actually, that there was a, 
what God was doing in the Old Testament, if you want to put it really simply, in terms of self-revelation, was spending several thousand years drumming it into the heads of human beings that there was one God. And as soon as that got thoroughly into their head that he was one, then they were ready to know that he was also three. But it took that all that time to get it through their head that there was one. I mean, if you look in the if you look in the Old Testament over and over and over again, it's idolatry, 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 you know, uh, false gods, Baal gods, all of these things that that he's, you know, constantly having to talk to the send the prophets to talk to the Israelites about. When Jesus comes, by the time Jesus comes, they're over that. The, the, the Jewish people have been thoroughly um, divorced from or weaned from or however you want to put it. Idolatry is not a problem for them. Now, that doesn't mean that the kind of the other kind of idolatry, like worship of oneself <laughs> or, you know, one's desires. Because later on, St. Paul will talk about greed, which is idolatry, and lust, which is idolatry. But it becomes, the, the, the term idolatry becomes more of a, of a metaphor mm -hmm. for, you know, putting yourself and your desires at the top of your hierarchy rather than God. Well, the other thing that he was doing in the Old Testament, it seems to me, is he's he was preparing a genealogy for the coming of Jesus right. Christ, right? right? He was preparing a people from within which there could be a genealogy prepared for the coming of Christ. And yeah. the, the perfection of his generosity is that that genealogy includes people of every imaginable type and right error and sin and fallenness and catastrophe so that we might all be able to see ourselves within that genealogy and in Christ yes and that that he could he could manifest himself in Christ to save us from all of that through that i mean to me that's see yeah. that, that that's the that's the whole beauty, I would say, of this idea of Jordan Peterson's about anomaly. And, and a lot of what I think about it may even be just what I picked up myself from other stuff, and it may not be what he said, and I can't even separate it out anymore. But um, I used to always have this question of evolutionists. Where does the information come from? Because you have no explanation for where all the information comes from that's in the in the cell in the DNA, because information doesn't just come from nowhere and get more and more complex over time by itself. And I finally stumbled upon this this uh, article about evolution that said, and. And this is not an argument for evolution or against evolution. I'm not making a statement on that at all. I'm just saying, if the evolutionary paradigm is true, then this is what the argument is, that 
from the beginning of the very first cell, whenever um, that organism came into contact with something difficult in its environment that it had to overcome, that would have, in the adaptation to that difficulty, that obstacle, it would have to grow information. And that that would then result in a more complex organism the next time around. And that this is the way that information has been able to grow and multiply within the evolutionary process is through coming into contact with, they don't use the word, but anomalies. They use the word obstacles or difficulties or challenges, unusual circumstances. Yeah. And so I think, wow, okay. <laughs> so then where did the anomalies come from? Because well, if the anomaly produces that kind of growth that the information actually increases based on its confrontation with the anomaly, then the anomaly has to be suited to the need of the particular growth in information. Because there's not that, enough time. That might be what life is. Like, yes. okay, so um, the, the big hurdle, um, see, this is the, you know, when we talk about the drawing forward, I, I mean, I, I don't have an issue with evolutionary, with history of, of life being evolutionary in its, mm -hmm. but it would be, I would attribute that to the, that drawing forward. Right. You know, of God drawing things forward to a telos, that that would be the, the pulling, you know, them forward. Okay. But the the big problem is abiogenesis that is the big problem that is the right. the idea that life came from from non-life this idea of this single cell uh, the single celled organism even beginning to start because that we didn't used to know like back in the 1950s say when they were trying to do the experiments in a lab and get a cell going with sparking it with electricity or sparking some sort of organic soup with electricity or something. Yeah. We did not know how complex a cell is. We didn't know. What we know now about how complex one single cell is, is absolutely mind blowing. So let me give you an, 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 an example of how complex a cell would be. Okay, so a, I could say that a cell I live near Atlanta, so I'll say I could say that a cell, a single cell, of which there are something like three trillion in your body, that a single cell is more is as complex as the city of Atlanta, but I would have understated it. Mm -hmm. So then I would say, okay, a single cell is as complex as the city of Atlanta. If the city of Atlanta had a wall around it and a dome over it with multiple openings in it that had to be opened and closed all day long in a, you know by someone very you know on a very regular basis to very precise um to ver to very precise constraints okay i would still not i would still be wrong 
Um, I would say that the cell was as complex as the city of Atlanta with the wall and dome over it with the openings, if also about half of the buildings every single day were being completely dismantled and reassembled. And I would, I would still not have hit it. I could say if it was like the city of Atlanta with the wall and the dome and the buildings being taken down and reassembled every single day, plus all of the train track and roads being removed and repaved or relayed every single day. But some Atlantans think that is the city we're living in, actually. But <laughs> that would give you, that might give you a picture, a somewhat accurate picture of how complex a cell is. There are a billion chemical reactions per second in a living cell. Mm -hmm. So we part of the the issue the problem has to do with life where life comes from how cells ever got got going um what you know i wouldn't find it all that difficult to get from a single cell to you know a blue whale and a human being but getting from getting from non-life to life whoa that you know that makes the that makes the other problem look like nothing that's where your real jump comes from <laughs> I, I don't know if you um i don't know if you caught that um conversation that i had with alex where we were discussing this guy who had done um had done a video about the abiogenesis concept he he's trying to come up with an idea of where the first life came from, from inorganic material. And he's positing that, you know, where these vents are in the ocean floor mm -hmm. and um, magma is coming up from inside the earth at these vents, that there's something is happening at those vents. But when he was explaining this idea, in order to get to the idea, he had, he showed this, beautiful visual of how the earth works and that there is iron on the surface of the earth that actually gets reabsorbed into the earth through certain ducts and channels that go down into the center of the earth the iron gets reincorporated in the core reheated and then it gets thrust back out again to the surface and that this is a continual process that's always going on on the earth now I think to myself, okay, fella, if you've solved the problem where the first living cell came from, <laughs> how do you solve the problem about how the earth is breathing? I mean, this right. the entire earth is this perfectly calibrated breathing organism of some sort that is actually recycling iron so that there's enough oxygen because the reason it does that is so that there's enough oxygen in the atmosphere that we have air to breathe i mean really the further that they go trying to prove something they keep pushing back further and further into this bed of knowledge of of how beautifully calibrated the universe is and how generous and abundant everything is and complex you know, I mean, all of these things, the, the more that they, the more they try to disprove God, the more he just shows up. Yes, yes. 
Yeah, well, that, okay, so this was one thing. Getting, going back to the thing about the ground of being and being in God, God, and this language just goes haywire, but God is existence. Mm-hmm. Um, existence itself, being itself. The question, one philosopher, it might have been Alfred North Whitehead said that there's only one question in philosophy is, you know, why is there anything instead of nothing? That's the question. And the, the answer has to be that being itself has to be that which can share being with other beings. Being has to be has to be that which can give being to others. Which means if being has to be a person. Being has to be a person. Because bringing others into existence is a decision made by a decision is made by a person. Mm-hmm. Does that make does that make sense? Well, yeah, and it, it reminds me of this passage in in Hebrews. I think it's chapter four, where it says, "Because the children share in the in flesh and blood, Jesus also partook in flesh and blood, so that he might, I think it's bring salvation." I can't remember what the end of the verse is, but. I was reading that and I thought, why does it use share for the children and partook for Jesus? The children share in bloods, in flesh and blood, so Jesus also partook in flesh and blood. And so I looked up the Greek and the the word for share in the children, I think I might have the wrong word. It's, it's kind of irrelevant right now, but I think it was koinonia. But when it's union in. Yes, yeah. But, but when, it, when it's Jesus, the word partook is meteko, which is made up of two words, meta and echo. So Jesus is the meta. So, so I, I don't know, my mind just blew when I got to that because it's this picture, you know, the, the, um, the kids use meta differently nowadays than, than I'm sure what it meant in Greek. But, but when you go back and look at the Greek meaning of meta, it's one of those words that's very, very deep and full and it has a lot of meaning to it. And it's been used throughout history in science to talk about many many different aspects of the scientific world and then of course we use it when we talk about metaphysics that which is above physics meta is that which is above and outside and yet somehow has some connection to everything else and so it's like jesus is the meta man the the one who in a sense shares in the flesh and blood with us so that he might 
bring redemption, he might, hmm, words fail me, but the idea is that, that we've been infected with some kind of a virus because of Adam and Eve's agency in the garden to eat the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. So we've been infected with this virus that we carry with us, but that when we partake in the flesh and blood with Jesus Christ, somehow we are, he is now infusing a new blood supply into us or infusing a new mode of being. Yes, a new mode of being. It's, we're kind of being in, not inoculated, that's the wrong word, but transfused with, with some sort of healing, regenerative power that gets rid of the virus little by little. You know, okay, it, so it, let me let me hit um, a couple of things. First of all, I want I know notice this going back in the conversation a little bit that you took a stand on the on the great Christian controversy that Paul um, referred to in his conversation with John, which was the um, was it superlapsarian or prelapsarian controversy. I didn't know anything about that. I know, but you did. You did because you said because you, because the the issue was whether the issue was whether um, what I the way I like to put it to people is whether this is Plan B or this was always the plan. Okay, so you know I believe that this was always the plan. That God, I, I sometimes I'll put it to people this way. I believe that God always knew what creating other beings would cost Him, and that we live, and that we live in a cross-shaped universe. Yeah. And that's that's what I have long long believed. It's not, you know, as a Catholic, it's not. Um, like the church hasn't come out. People think that the Catholic church has a lot of dogmas, has a lot of things you have to believe. And really it has, it has, you know, a certain number of things that you have to believe. But there's a lot of play and controversy and discussion, you know, around, around the edges. Um, and so this is something that, you know, Catholic theologians have come down on both sides, both sides of, but, but they, they stay in the church and they don't get kicked out of the seminaries for it. Unfortunately, we're not good at kicking people out of seminaries who really should be kicked out of seminaries, but that's another story. But, um, but Paul talked about some Calvin, I think it's Calvin college professors who came down on the wrong side within his pride. And I didn't know which side they came down on with this. Well, so is this, is this cross shaped universe? Is that prelapsarian or superlapsarian? You know, I don't, I don't really know which, um, which is which. I don't know how to define which is which. One of them means one of them. One of them is like, God had a plan A, and it, you know, it went to hell in the garden, and this is plan B. All right. And then there's there's other people who say no, this this is it. This was always the plan. You know, it wasn't like. Adam and Eve fell and God was going, Oh shoot. Now what do I do? Yeah. Yeah. But the other aspect of it is when we talk about, and you mentioned about God having foreknowledge in a, in a sense, 
I don't, I, I kind of don't like, well, I know that word's in Bible sessions. I don't like that word. I think that we hear that word, we hear that word wrong because we hear that word as though, like, okay, I'm, I'm existing in time. And, um, and I could say, you know, such and such a thing is going to happen, you know, several hours from now or a certain number of days from now or something. And I, I know it ahead of time, you know, we, right. that's, not the sense of that. that's not the sense in which I meant it at all. Okay. But I'm, I'm just saying that's how people tend to hear it. They think of God's foreknowledge as, as though God knows something that's in the future, but in classical Christian understanding of God, God doesn't have, there's no future. God's, there's no future. God, for God, there's no future and there's no past. So God is always now. For God, it's always now. And so this is kind of a, God is, your whole life is present to God now. Your whole life is present to him now. The whole life of humanity, the universe, it's all present to God now. Mm-hmm. And he is present to it. He's present to our whole life. You know, we're, we're, there's the presence of God and our presence to God is all there all the time, constantly. It, it just seems to be unfolding to us, but it, none of it is unfolding to God. Mm-hmm. If, that makes, if that makes sense, which ties in with an, a, a Jungian thing that Jordan Peterson has kind of referenced, which is this idea that your future self is pulling you forward. Have right. you run that, that, Yeah, that's that little interest thing that he talks right. about. Right. But, but that it's, so the question then is, is your is your future self real and this gets into the whole thing that john verbecki and um and paul vanderclay were talking about about what is real and whether possibilities are real mm-hmm. so we you could say on the one hand that your future self is is a possibility but since your future self is already present to God and God is already present to your future self, then your future self is real mm-hmm. and can be pulling you, doing that, pulling you forward, get, giving you interest in a sense or, or sharing interest with you. And maybe, maybe our future selves in heaven are doing that all of the time with us well see that 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 would be a perfect mesh with the whole quantum mechanics idea that if you know the position and the trajectory of any wave you know it's entire what you know everything about it what is going to happen in the future so if at this moment you could calculate the position and the trajectory of every quantum wave in the universe at this moment you could foresee 
everything about the universe and what would happen in the future if there is such a thing as time. Because a lot of these quantum physicists don't even believe that time exists. But, but um, I think to a quantum physicist, what you just said wouldn't seem strange at all because it would fit right in with the way that they think about the way the universe is constructed. That of course all of these things are, are existing. All of these potentials are, are real. existing. Are real. Are real, yes. Yes. All of these potentials are, in a sense, already real. So we solved it. <laughs> well, it's certainly time to wrap this up. <laughs> We're going to have to do the food thing next time. Are you, are you okay. game? Yeah, we'll do that. Okay. It's really good talking to you, Mary. It was really great talking to you, too. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye.